in all of our time with the children, we failed to tell you that we have these <coughs> journals available. So Johnny's at the back, and anybody who wants one can just jump up and get one, all right? This is the book of Acts. We'd like everybody to have one so that they could just read through the book of Acts during these uh, few months together. And the way it's done is the scripture's on one side and there's a blank page on the other. And so it gives you a chance to write something there that you might not normally want to write in your Bible. And it gives you a chance to keep up with what we're seeing in the book of Acts. Now, I want to make sure you understand we're not going to teach it verse by verse. Johnny said, have you ever taught the book of Acts verse by verse? I said, yes, and I think I wore the people out because it took us years, you know, to get through it. So we're not going to do that, all right? Well, we're going to show you the main themes. We'd like you to read verse by verse, and you have a chance to read through the book of Acts. We said last week that Acts is telling us about a church that's a movement and not a building. I reminded those gathered last week that those precious children that just left, if they were in a standard church, maybe like I grew up in, they'd be taught a little rhyme, here's the church and here's the steeple and open the doors and see all the people. Only problem with that is it's terrible theology, all right? Because this is not the church. This is a building that may or may not have a steeple. I've received emails and communication this week from a lot of places on the other side of the world with many people who could not go this morning into a church house with a steeple on it, but meeting quietly, studying the scripture as new followers of Christ. If we were going to teach our children good theology, it would be here's a building and it may or may not have a steeple. That's not the point. But if you want to see the church, you got to look at the people. These little wiggly fingers, that's the church. And we are the church when we gather like this, and we are the church when we scatter and we're sent. And we live where the points of light where God places us to be his representatives. And we joyfully come together because it strengthens us when we can sing those songs and we can study God's word. And we can hug each other's neck and we can make plans hopefully to see each other before we gather a week later. And so the church, the movement called the church is made up of the people. Did a little word study last week. Hadn't planned on going there, but let me, let me make sure that everyone's tracking, all right? The word church, as it evolved through German, was speaking of the place and of a set-aside holy place. Now, when I was a little kid, first of all, I wouldn't have gone to church with my shirt tail out. I know mother, mother would have fixed that, all right? And then she would have had me not run in the church, and you'd hear people say, and don't you stand there and lie to me in church. You know, like, like you're in a sacred place and everything's different just because you're in this space right here. Well, the space has memories. And the space has been dressed up through the years with stained glass and all kinds of other things. But, oh, God, deliver us from thinking that the church is the church house because it's not. The church in the Bible is the word ecclesia. It means the called out ones. It's those who've been called to personal faith in Christ. They've been called out of the group and they've been brought into a new citizenship. It was a word used whenever they would have a city meeting and all the people would go to represent that they were certified citizens and they could vote, all right? Today, if you know Christ, 
you're one of those little wiggly fingers. You're in the church. We gathered in a church house for worship. For some of you, I know this is not your church home. But we gathered to talk about the movement of the Spirit of God through the people of God in this very first century, right after Jesus died. If you have this little journal on page one, we are, it's actually numbered page six, okay, but there's no number at the top of it, I don't think, all right? In the very first page here on the book of Acts, we see that Jesus had been alive from, back from the grave 40 days. He had been gathering with his disciples, and he was getting ready to ascend back into heaven. And when he did, as he was uh, showing them what would happen, he told them, this is going to move when when you start representing me and this earthly body goes to heaven and the spiritual body of Christ starts the movement among the world, it's going to move. It's going to move. Look at verse 8. It's going to move power that's going to move from Jerusalem to Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, we have people that come to visit us and they say, man, I really like coming to a small church. My first comment was, easy to get a parking place this morning, right? Huh? Yeah, it wasn't all right. And, you know, one of the good things about it is that people are going to know you. One of the bad things about it is people are going to know you, all right? And when you show up or you don't show up, they're going to notice, right? But I pray that we don't get so comfortable in enjoying the smallness that we miss the intention of the church. The church is intended to move to multiply, for people to take this message of the risen Christ from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now, if you look at this, I, I want to put up on the screen to show you that this Acts 1 verse 8 really is the outline of the whole book, right? Because it says you'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. And then it shows the progression that was about to take place in Jerusalem. You wait there till the Spirit comes. Then Judea, which I asked the crowd earlier when we were talking, I said it would be like Marietta and Cobb County. They kind of shook their head. I said, okay, I live in Roswell, so it's like Roswell and Fulton County, okay? Because Jerusalem was a city, but Judea was like the surrounding county, if you will. And Jesus said when the Spirit comes on you, it's going to move you through Judea, into Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So let's, let's break that down. The next slide shows you this is how the book of Acts is broken down. Chapters 1 through 7, they're in Jerusalem. Something happens at the end of chapter 7. A guy named Stephen gets stoned and the persecution has come upon the church and they realize, oh yeah, Jesus said we're going to move. So like it or not, we're moving. And they moved out of Jerusalem into Judea and then in Samaria. Let me tell you a little bit about Samaria. Samaria was uh, a place that was the easiest way to travel. I mean, if you take a map and draw a line from Jerusalem up to Galilee, but they would go around Samaria because the Jews didn't want to be around those people. You know some of those people, don't you? In this case, those people were the half-breeds. They were part Jew and part Gentile, and the Jewish people in their self-made righteousness despised them. 
So missiologists, I think correctly, have taken this verse and challenged the church that we have the same kind of obligations for Jerusalem and then for Judea. You know, this morning I prayed that the other churches that are gathering, and some of them are just now starting their service, I hope they do well. There's no competition here of us trying to get you here and not there. I I tell our church leaders that when someone comes, we want to know if they know Christ. And if they have a personal relationship with Christ, we're not going to beg them to become part of our church. Because if we've got to beg them to start, then we're going to have to beg them to stay, right? And so we, we want people that know Christ to find where they're supposed to gather with other believers. But as we gather, we pray that Judea does well. I I pray for Bryant, my friend down at Johnson Ferry. I pray they do well today. I pray Pastor Jeremy over at First Woodstock. I pray they do well today. Judea, Samaria. We have to realize there are some places in town that you don't normally go. You drive around because it's so hard and so different from you. One time I went downtown Atlanta to meet with a church planter. He was starting a church on Martin Luther King Drive, and you could see I went to the seminary. Uh, seminary. <laughs> I did go to seminary. I went to the stadium, and I turned right. And I went up Martin Luther King Drive, and I went to a place called the Busy Bee Restaurant. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been there. It's about this wide, okay? And when I walked in, I don't think anybody noticed that I came just because I was the only white guy in the room. So I I walked in, and I sat at the back. The mayor came in with his entourage. I thought, must be good food or he wouldn't be here, right? And then the church planter came, and we talked. He told me his story. He told me how he got there. I said, so show me the neighborhood. We went out and got in the car, and as we started up a hill, he said, you need to turn left at this stop sign. I said, Why? He said, you see that gang up there at that next stop sign? We might not get through there. We turned left, and it was crack house after crack house, boarded up, deserted community where this church planter was trying to start a church. I cried a little, prayed a lot with him, left, and I called KK on the way home. It was before the hands-free law. All right, I called KK on the way home. And I was talking, and I said, Honey, I think I've been to Atlanta for the first time this morning. It was a whole part of the city I didn't know existed, and I certainly would never normally go to. Jesus, you could say warned. (laughs) He told the disciples, When the Spirit moves on you, you're going to move out. And you're going to share this message with people like you and people that you don't like that maybe aren't like you. And it's going to keep going. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. We are here this morning because Acts 1-8 started a movement of people telling people, telling people so they can know Christ. The movement is kind of like a concentric circle. I grew up in a little town south of Atlanta. We had a lake there. And I went out on the lake sometimes, and sometimes it was just as smooth as glass. And you would take a rock and throw it out into the water, and it would do like this. It would just begin to go out in circles, spreading and expanding. What a picture of the church. That God wants his people, the called out ones, 
to be so captured by their love for Christ and their desire for others to know Christ and listen to the indwelling Holy Spirit who bears witness of the presence of Christ in our heart but who lifts our eyes to see a world that needs Christ and the gospel begins to move. He told them to wait and in chapter 2 of Acts what he told them to wait for happened. If you turn a page or so go over to page 10 in the journal you see chapter 2 beginning it says the day of Pentecost arrived. Some of you only hear the word Pentecost because you've heard of Pentecostal theology and you hear Pentecost. That's not what the word means, okay? The word means 50, okay? 50 days after the Passover, there was a prescribed feast for the children of Israel. And this feast was a celebration of God's presence, but then they would bring with them the first fruits as an offering during this time. Kind of a cool time for the first fruits of the church to be birthed. Fifty days after Jesus had been raised, he'd already gone back up into heaven. It says they were together in one place and suddenly there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Think about it. What would happen if the wind began to blow this morning? I don't know about you, but I, I remember back to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Remember that story in John? Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus said, you have to be born again. Now, people have mocked that term, but it's Bible. You have to be born from above. And Nicodemus said, I don't understand. He said, well... That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit, and you have to be born of water and the spirit. Now, some have erroneously taken that and said you have to be born in water of baptism. That's not what he was talking about. How does the mother carry a baby inside of her? Well, there's lots of mysteries when we talk about that, but we know that it's in a sack of water. And when the water breaks... And the baby comes forth. Jesus was talking about being born physically and being born spiritually. So he applies it to Nicodemus. He said, let me tell you about it. It's, it's like the wind. Can you see the wind? No, you can't see the wind. But you can see what the wind does. Sometimes it's like you hear the wind. We have a front porch for two reasons. One, for our 96-year-old Marine to sit uh, and the other is for me to go and listen to the rain. And boy, I love it when you can hear the rain coming. And you can hear the presence in the trees and you know something's about to happen. And then you hear the rain begin to fall. You don't see the wind, but you hear and see the evidence of the wind. Remembering what Jesus told Nicodemus about the Spirit, now we find in Acts chapter 2 that the Spirit is coming. And as the Spirit is coming, He is coming to change lives. <clears throat> now they began to speak in tongues that, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And three different times here in this passage, it talks about people hearing the good works of God in their own language. 
And so some have said it was a gift of a learned language that they'd never learned that they quickly spoke. Some have said that it was a gift of hearing because everybody heard the message in their own language. But there was a lot of confusion going on because people were so joyful and celebrating and people thought they were drunk. And people stu- Peter stood up and said, hey, these guys aren't drunk. It's only the third hour. I mean, it's way too early to be drinking. What you're seeing is the work of God's Spirit moving in people's hearts because God has kept His promise and He sent His Spirit to come and live in our hearts. And He reminds you who's speaking. It's Peter. The same Peter that not our Lord three times now stands up to be the spokesman of the church. And he says, let me tell you guys what's happening. God promised through the prophet Joel that he would do this and his spirit would come. David prophesied it when he said he was going to be the eternal king and that God would not leave him in the grave. And David's still in the grave, so David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the son of man who was the son of God who is the eternal king who's been raised. So Peter begins to explain the scripture to them to show them how Jesus had fulfilled it. And as he talked to them and as he moved through explaining it to them, I want you to see in Peter's sermon, it comes down to when he says in verse 36. He says to them, let all of Israel know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The point of his preaching was to connect the dots and to show them in the story of God, God had kept his promise and sent his son to be the deliverer, to pay for our sin. And there's so many interesting words here in this, in this sermon of Peter when he says it was the foreknowledge of God that sent him, but he was delivered and you crucified him, but One preacher took that text and preached a whole sermon saying, did you crucify Christ? Technically, we did. It was my sin that put him there. And he took the judgment that he didn't deserve, that I deserved. He was the substitutionary offering in my place. And Peter stands to announce now in the power of the indwelling spirit. Jesus had told them, it's going to be better for you that I leave. And they're going to say, better? How could it be better that you're gone? Because if I leave, I'm going to be inside of all of you. And so Peter now with the indwelling spirit of God announcing the word, which by the way, you see the fullness of the spirit and the word of God constantly together here in the book of Acts. And he announces the truth about Jesus being raised from the dead. And he said, this is the one the one that you crucified, God has made him Lord and Messiah. Don't, don't miss the meaning of the word Christ. We just kind of put it all together, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you understand. Lord means boss. Jesus means God's Savior. Jehovah saves, the meaning of the word. And then Christ, Messiah, the promised one that would be the one to rule and reign over the universe. When they heard this, the scripture says they were cut to the heart. 
usually I can tell. <laughs> Standing here talking, hearing myself, sometimes hearing what I'm about to say in my brain and go, don't say that, you know. But I can stand here <clears throat> and I can talk and I can read God's word and I can show it to you. I can watch as someone is pierced in the heart. Someone said, I think it was last week, preacher, you were talking about something and, and uh, I hope you weren't talking to me. I said, you can usually tell if I look away, I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking about you, all right? <laughs> because if I realize that God's just smacking somebody with what I'm saying, I'm not just going to stand here and say, did you get that, all right? <clears throat> but I can tell. Usually I can tell when the Word of God is coming home by the work of the Spirit of God and cutting into hearts. It says that Peter stood and announced this about Jesus, and they were cut to the hearts. The next part of that verse, they said, what should we do? You know, that's what happens when you realize that you've sinned and you need a Savior. What, what should I do? And Peter responded. He said, repent, meaning admit you're wrong and turn and go another way. And be baptized to give evidence that you've put your faith in Jesus. And God will give you this promise of his spirit. Now, baptism doesn't save, but it shows people a great picture of when they were buried and they were raised. <clears throat> I read this week about the uh, work that followed this sermon of Peter. Get that clear in a second here. There was no river, really, to baptize all those people. But there were plenty of pools. Uh, they weren't quite like our pools, treated with chlorine, but there were plenty of pools. So there was plenty of opportunity in Jerusalem for all of them to be baptized following that message of Peter. They were cut to the heart. We want to know Jesus. What's, what do we do now that he's raised? And he said, put your faith in Christ and be baptized and give evidence that you're following Christ. But then I thought, what a perfect verse for us to use today as we're talking about parent-child dedication. As he explained this to them, verse 39, he says, here's how the promise works. This promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This promise, what promise? promise that Jesus had made when he said I'll never leave you never forsake you the promise that Jesus made when he said when the comforter comes he will come and bear witness in your heart he will show you sin righteousness and judgment he will show you sin that you didn't believe on me he'll show righteousness that I made you right with God he'll show judgment that the judgment already happened on the cross and when he comes to live in you this promised presence will move through you and move you out into the world.
So Jesus said, this promise I'll be sending you, wait. And now Peter announces, hey, here's who it's for. It's for you and for your children and for those who are far off. Now, let's, let's talk about that a minute, all right? You heard us say when the children were up here on the platform, we can't believe for them. Every parent I know wishes they could believe for their children. Sometimes it's like, if I could just find that loose screw in there, you know? I know that they're not acting like they used to. I mean, what's going on? The greatest joys, you can write this down, I, I know it's true. The greatest joys and the greatest sorrows come from our children. Greatest joys, greatest sorrows. Every parent I know wishes they could believe for them, but they can't. And then you find, you know, if I could believe for you, then it'd be me believing, not you believing. It wouldn't be any fun for you. I, mean, I know you got to have it for you. I mean, you go through the drill, you know. You figure out that that's what's going on. But this promise is for you, for your children. It's interesting to me that all this is crammed into the same sentence. And for those who are far off. It's not like we go, you know, man, it's great to know Jesus and I want my kids to know Christ. And yeah, we're going to church and everything's great. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to care about people who don't know Jesus. No, it's not an afterthought. It's the logical progression of the Spirit of God in our lives to make us love people really like we love our children because we want them to know Christ and walk with Christ. You know, I'm old enough now. I've got some sons in the faith. And those young pastors call me and say, Pastor, what do you do when, you know, fill in the blank? And when we finish, I say, go read Philippians 4, verse 1. Paul said, you are my joy and my crown. Our children. But also for those who are far off. Doesn't mean for those who live in California. You know, that's not what he's talking about. Your children that live in California. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are far away from God. But the church, the called out ones, have been given this promise of the Spirit that we might present it to everyone everywhere wanting them to know Jesus. So we're going to find that in the book of Acts. That the Spirit comes not just to comfort us, but He comes to propel us. The love of Christ gives us no choice but to take this message and desire for everyone to know him. Do you know him today? Have you been cut to the heart? Have you finally made sense out of why Jesus had to die so that you would have your sin paid for? Has it finally clicked that God laid on him the sin of us all and he gives us a gift of forgiveness? We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we receive it and we trust him. 
and he starts changing us from the inside out. I hope you know him. This promise is for you and for your children and for those who are way off who still maybe have never heard of him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for how you have worked in our lives by your spirit and brought us to personal faith in Jesus. We thank you for friends and family who can gather with us even when we celebrate family as a church. But we pray, Lord, that you would so work in us that we would not settle down and be satisfied in the wrong place, but that we would offer ourselves and our children to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, Father, drive home by your Spirit who testifies of Christ, that you keep your word, and you've given us a promise that we can trust you, and we pray that our children will know you and trust you, and we pray that you would use us to share this message with those who are far off. For it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Would you look this way? <clears throat> I was uh, given an assignment years ago to be missions mobilizer for our international mission board. I was going out, going to churches week after week, sometimes two or three a week, different kind of mission conferences and preaching. And every time I would end by telling them a story about a missionary that came to our house and prayed that God would make all of our children missionaries. Laid her hands on all of them. Laid her hands on KK's tummy expecting the fourth. And when she finished, she said, if just half our children would be missionaries and the other half would stay home and pay for it, we could take care of this, you know. And uh, KK started praying that God would send our children to the ends of the earth. So I told that story and I shared it everywhere I went. And then one day God made me live it. It was prior to 9-11, so we got permission to walk down to the gate. And my daughter and her husband and my first grandson kissed us goodbye and walked down the jetway to take the gospel to the Middle East. KK and I both cried a little bit. And then I said, you know, I'm not crying because she's going and we won't see her. I'm crying because I've always wanted my family to care about those who are far off. Oh God, make us a missionary church. Parents, it's going to be dangerous to bring your kids here. I'm going to pray they grow up to be missionaries and you not see them on Mother's Day, all right? Because they're going to be on the other side of the earth. But what greater joy can we have than living out the promise of his spirit wanting the whole world to know that he's real? We're going to sing a song. It starts with a great gospel truth. He became sin who knew no sin that we might know God's righteousness in him. If that's your testimony today, I pray you can sing it with great joy. If you don't know him, keep listening to why Jesus died and what you can know by his resurrection.